Please have 1 Corinthians 7 open in front of you, both so you can follow what I'm going to say and so you can check it really does come from the Bible. 1 Corinthians chapter 7. That's where we've got to in our series as we're going through 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians was originally a letter, a letter written to a church in Corinth. Corinth was a town in ancient Greece. It was known for its immorality. It had a particular reputation for being immoral. Probably partly connected with being a seaport, but also because of the culture that it was immersed in, a very immoral culture. The Greek culture it had also had contradictory views of the body. The Greeks worshipped the body. If you know anything about the ancient Olympics or have seen Greek ancient statues, they worshipped the body. And yet at the same time, they thought the body was unspiritual. And it's not the real you. The real you is spirit, not body. Strange, contradictory beliefs. Now, that culture, that society had got into the church. And when that happens, well, marriage is going to be affected. And in a society that's immoral and has got these funny views about the body, people are going to have all sorts of questions about marriage. And they had. And that's what's going on here in 1 Corinthians 7. The Apostle Paul is answering their questions. Now, this is like us. Did you recognise us in Corinth? We're in an immoral society, a very immoral society, very much like Greek society. And our society has got strange views of the body. Body's worshipped, but then you can actually be a different person from your body. Maybe even a girl trapped in a boy's body. What's going on there? Strange views about the body. And, of course, culture gets into the church. And, of course, our society's attitudes affect us. And so marriage gets affected. And, of course, people have got all sorts of questions about marriage. We're in a society that's even tried to redefine marriage in law a few years ago. So, of course, we've got questions about marriage. And so this chapter, 1 Corinthians 7, is very relevant to us. Now, to understand this chapter and respond rightly to it, we're going to need to have a good doctrine of Scripture. Have you got a good doctrine of Scripture? What does that mean? It means we need to get our understanding of the Bible right if we're going to respond to this rightly. And I'll give you some reasons why. One is, if you're going to listen to this sermon this evening, you need a good doctrine of scripture, because I can't pretend that this chapter is easy. And I can't pretend that I've got a bit of light entertainment style listening for you this evening. Chapter 7 isn't just light entertainment. So I hope you've got a good doctrine of scripture that says, this is God's word, it's worth working at. I'm not just here to be entertained. You also need a good doctrine of scripture because this chapter isn't about giving us a warm devotional glow. It says things like, if you are married, keep having sex. Whoa, is that the sort of thing that God says to us? Yes, it is. You need an understanding that the Bible is God speaking to you, even when he says things we don't expect. And even when it's not giving you a warm feeling. Now, sometimes people speak as if God really spoke to me this evening. I can tell because it gave me a warm feeling. No, you can really tell if it came from this book. Even if he says something you didn't expect. 
Here's another reason we need a good doctrine of scripture. We don't have an Islamic understanding of scripture. What do I mean? Muslims claim the Quran came straight down from heaven. And Muhammad was just like a machine. His, his only input was to write it down. They even claim he was illiterate. It was so under the control of heaven, an illiterate man wrote it down, and he had no input into it at all. Now, it would be good fun to look at how ridiculous that claim is, but we're not here tonight to study Islam. What we need to recognise is the Bible doesn't claim anything like that. What we have here is a letter from Paul, written by a man whose character shaped what he wrote, And it was written to specific people with specific issues going on. And they had specific questions they wanted answered. And yet God has made it perfectly part of his message for humans for all time. Our understanding of scripture is nothing like a Muslim's understanding. And that means we must work at understanding the context it was written in. What prompted it to be written? What was going on? What's behind the surface here? What was Paul addressing in his letter to them? And how does that relate to us? And it also means this. God took something specific then and he made it part of his of a balanced, complete message for all humans. And so to understand marriage... You need more than 1 Corinthians 7. You need to put 1 Corinthians 7 together with Genesis 2. What's the essence of marriage? Two becoming one flesh. You need to put it together with the Song of Songs. That marriage is to be joyfully loving, enjoyably intimate. You need to put it together with Ephesians 5. That marriage is a picture of Christ and the church. So it has immense value. And the husband and wife have different roles. See, 1 Corinthians 7 on its own will not give you a right view of marriage because God never designed it to be on its own. He designed it to be part of a whole package that he teaches in the Bible. So put it together with Genesis 2, Song of Songs and Ephesians 5. And you might think of some other places too. And by the way, I'm not going to be trying to do that this evening. I've got enough trouble trying to preach 1 Corinthians 7 without introducing them as well. We need to put them all together. We need to get 1 Corinthians 7 in its context at the time in Corinth and its context in the Bible as a whole. I'll give you one more reason we need a good understanding of scripture. In Victorian England, there was a famous preacher called Charles Spurgeon. And he said something like this, from every town and every village in England, you can get to London. If you find the right road out of that town and out of that village, there's a road that will lead you to London. Now, he said, also from every part of the Bible, from every chapter and every verse, there's a road that will lead you to Jesus. And the preacher's job is to find that road and get you to Jesus. And Spurgeon said, if I can't see what the road is, then I'm willing to go through hedges, down ditches and across fields. But I must get you to Jesus. Now, that's the right heart that a preacher should have. Jesus must be honoured. And it must be said, sometimes preachers go through hedges, down ditches and across fields. They shouldn't go because they've twisted the passage to try to see Jesus in a way he isn't there. 
How does 1 Corinthians 7 honour Jesus? Not by us twisting and stretching the passage to say, oh, I can see a picture of Jesus in verse 26. And don't look at verse 26, I said that at random. It's not by us twisting it to say, I can see a picture of Jesus here. It's by us obeying it. It's by us obeying it. Because it is part of a letter that is all about humbly living for Jesus, not for self. If you can remember back to chapters 1 and 2, it's about living the cross-shaped way that follows Jesus, not putting self first. And 1 Corinthians 7 is saying, now look at that in your relationships with others and live it. And that's how 1 Corinthians 7 will honour Jesus. Now, with all that about the Bible in mind, let's see what God is saying to us from 1 Corinthians 7. What I want to do is go through some specific situations in verses 1 to 16. But I'm not going to manage all the ones that are on the notice sheet, because I realised after the notice sheet was uh, produced that there were too many there, and we would be here for a long time. Then we get a general principle that's been underlying the whole chapter. That's in verses 17 to 24. It's been underlying all the stuff about marriage, but it's bigger than marriage. So this is not just this evening for married people. I think you'll see that fairly quickly. There is a principle that's bigger and broader than marriage. And there are lessons here for all of us. So let's first of all have some specific situations in verses 1 to 17. The first one is, to the married, stay living as married. This is verses 1 to 6. To the married, God says, stay living as married. Now, the Corinthians had written to Paul. Do you see that in verse 1? Now for the matters you wrote about. They'd written him a letter. And they'd clearly asked him a load of specific questions because chapters 7 to 10 are answers to questions they'd written to him about. And he starts by quoting them. First one, now for the matters you wrote about, it is good for a man not to marry. It would be helpful to have quotation marks around that because he seems to be quoting their letter. Except we need to get the translation right to get everything else right. Now, I've read to you from the old New International Version. If you've got the new New International Version, if you can follow that, I think that gets the translation right. And my one puts the right translation in a footnote. It says, it could be translated, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. And that's correct. It's literally, it's good for a man not to touch a woman. Which wasn't about marriage. It was about sexual relations. You see, some in the Corinthian church were reacting to the immorality around them. We live in a terribly immoral society. Uh, then they laid on top of that, they had a funny view of the body. The body's a negative thing. Anything to do with the body's a negative thing. And their reaction was, sex is unspiritual. It's best not to do it. And they wrote Paul. Uh, they, they wrote to Paul about that. Are we right in thinking, it's better for a man not to touch a woman at all? It seems married Christians were refusing to engage in sex. Now, this might look totally irrelevant to us, because we live in a sex-obsessed society. You might think, well, our problem is not that. It's the opposite. But not so fast. 
Because sadly, church history has been like a pendulum. You've seen a pendulum in a grandfather clock? And it's tended to be, it swings one way, and the next thing you know, it's swinging the opposite way. Church history has been full of reactions and overreactions. So let's not think that we're necessarily going to be at this extreme forever. And on top of that, surveys claim, I don't have a clue if they're accurate, but they claim while we live in a sex-obsessed society, actually less sex is happening. And especially in marriage, less is happening. Now that makes 1 Corinthians 7 very relevant to us. If those surveys are right and we live in a sex-obsessed society, we exactly need this. So, what is Paul's answer to them? It's in verse 2. Verse 2. But since there is so much immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. Except we've got to get our translation right. Sorry, I don't usually comment on this sort of thing because we do have good, reliable translations of the Bible. But there's a little thing here makes a difference. It actually says each man should keep having his own wife and each woman should keep having her own husband. What does it mean to keep having? Well, it's a euphemism. And again, it's about sex. You see, the Bible, the Bible talks about these things tenderly, gently, not like our society, crudely. It's a phrase for the man, the husband and wife keeping up their sexual relations. Verse 2 isn't telling everyone to get married. In fact, we'll find in a short while that the Apostle Paul is very positive about being unmarried. It's telling married people, stay living as married in its full sense, including sexual relations. It's not bad, it's not dirty, it's not unspiritual. Now, there's a practical reason why Paul was saying this. It's almost certainly why, back in chapter 6, do you remember a couple of weeks ago we found the men were going to the prostitutes? It's almost certainly because the wives were saying, we're too spiritual for sex. And Paul is saying, that's not spiritual, that's disastrous, it's provoking sin. So husbands and wives get back together. But there's also a more positive reason hidden in verses 3 to 5. A more positive reason. Behind verses 3 to 5 is this principle. Husband and wife, you belong to each other. You belong to each other. <laughs> I did, I'd forgotten I was going to do this again, comment on translation. Verse 5, here we go again. That do not deprive each other is more literally do not defraud each other. He says to the husbands and wives who are refusing to engage in sex, he says, don't defraud each other. Now, when do you defraud someone? What is fraud? If you do benefits fraud, what are you doing? You're taking something that's not yours. It should belong to someone else. And you're taking it. And verses 3 to 5 is saying in marriage you belong to each other. So don't defraud your spouse of what belongs to him or belongs to her. So he says... In verse 4, the wife's body doesn't belong to her alone, but also to her husband. And all the people in Greek culture nodded their heads and said, Amen, because that's what they all believed. Yes, of course, the wife is the husband's property, they believed. But then the Bible does something radical, and it says, and this, this is symmetrical. It's the other way round too. The husband belongs to the wife. 
He's not his own person. He belongs to his wife. The husband and wife are put completely on a level in these verses. It's completely symmetrical here. And it's pretty radical. Well, it's very radical for their day. And radical too, both are seen as having sexual desires. But the important point here is marriage is each belonging to the other, each giving themselves for the other. And sex is a physical expression of that, but it's something bigger than that. It describes marriage as a whole. It's it's one person belonging to the other and giving themselves for the other. And yes, sex is a physical expression of it. And God's word here says it matters and it's good and it's something to work at and don't neglect it. Behind verses 5 to 6, we have, it's pretty easy to see, that some of the Corinthians were saying, we're spiritual people. So we need to get away from sex so we can devote ourselves to praying. And Paul says, well, okay then. Okay, I'll allow it. Notice verse 6. I'll allow it. I wouldn't command you to do that. No way would I command it. But I'll allow it. But only if both of you agree. And only if you both Make this short and then get back into bed again. You see how important this is? This is God's word. I hope you've got a strong doctrine of scripture. You don't think God's word is just when we hear about Jesus on the cross and it makes you feel warm. Now there's a lesson here broader than sex. These verses say marriage is good, but it needs to be protected and nurtured. These people had these funny ideas that meant their marriage was being unprotected and not nurtured. And these verses say marriage is good. But Paul says to them, look, you're, you think you're being spiritual, but you're being dangerous because marriage must be protected and nurtured. It's like a plant. It's like these flowers. What could go wrong with these flowers? There could be attack from the outside, couldn't there? Bugs and diseases that cause them to die. But they can also be from the inside, lack of nurture. If we leave them there and don't water them for the next week, you know what they're going to look like in a week's time or two weeks' time. Withering due to a lack of attention. And marriage can be killed by temptation from the outside. And Paul's very aware of that. And he's saying guard against it and lack of attention from the inside. And he's saying be aware of that and guard against that. Don't let your marriage wither. So if you are married... You must keep reminding yourself, I belong to my spouse. This relationship isn't about what I get out of it. This relationship is about what I give into it. Although ironically, the more you take that attitude of what I give, the more you'll get. But that shouldn't surprise us in God's world. Your marriage isn't a distraction from following Christ. It is the main way in which you follow the Christ who put others before himself. So, to the married, Paul says, stay living as if married. Stay living as married. Don't act as if you're unmarried. Now, next to the unmarried, verses 7 to 9, to the unmarried, he says, staying unmarried is good. To the unmarried, he says, staying unmarried is good. Because we're like pendulums and we tend to swing from one side to the other, we could hear what I've just said. The married life is the best life for everyone. 
Uh, we could hear what I've just said and take it as the married life is the best life for everyone. That's it. The married life is the best life for everyone. Everyone ought to be married. So Paul says in verse 7, actually, I'm unmarried and I think being unmarried is great. I highly recommend being unmarried, Paul is saying here. Now, a question for you, a question. What is the gift Paul refers to in verse 7? Do you see, he says, I wish that all men were as I am, but each man has his own gift from God. One has this gift, another has that. What is the gift Paul refers to? Now, I haven't asked people to answer up in services recently with questions, but I'm not going to on this one because it's difficult and controversial. And I'm not sure what the answer is. Here's two options. Some say it's celibacy in the true sense. Some are able to be unmarried without it bothering them, without a great desire to be married. So some say it's that. Paul had this gift that he, he, he wasn't bothered about a desire to be married. He was quite comfortable with being unmarried. Maybe that's the gift. Some say, no, it's not that. It's just your marital status. If you are unmarried, whether you're happy about it or not, whether it is for this next year or the rest of your life, that's God's gift to you at the moment, being unmarried. And if you're married, well, that's God's gift to you, being married. And if you become unmarried, sadly widowed, well, then being unmarried becomes God's gift to you. Do you see? They're saying just what state you find yourself in is the gift. Others say, no, it's whether you've got this gift of being able to be contented with it. Now, which do you reckon is the gift? I'm sure there'll be different opinions here. I don't think it matters that much which you think it is. I don't think it matters that much as long as you take the attitude of verse 8 and 9 and the rest of chapter 7. And the attitude here is being married is good, but in a fallen world it has difficulties. And being unmarried is good, but in a fallen world it has difficulties. Do you see? Now, that's fairly straightforward. That might seem just really obvious, but often it's treated this way. Being married is good and being unmarried is a difficulty. Being married is good and being unmarried is a problem. But the message of chapter 7, and we'll see this, God willing, especially when we get on to verse 25 onwards, next week or the week after, the message is being married and unmarried are both good and in a fallen world both have difficulties. So the church should be the last place where the unmarried are made to feel odd or second rate. I hope that's obvious. Why should it be obvious in the church? The church is the last place. Well, because who is the human being that we most admire and we most look up to and we most think of as the perfect person and complete person? Oh, Jesus Christ, who was unmarried. Now, have you noticed what I've been calling unmarried people? What have I been calling them? Unmarried. What do they normally get called? Single. Single. But I've avoided calling them single because language matters. If you know anything about political correctness and wokeness, do you know anything about them? 
People who are politically correct and woke have got this right. Language matters. Language has power to shape our thinking, to shape us. And what does single emphasise? It emphasises aloneness. It emphasises an individual on his or her own. It emphasises isolation. But no one is single. I didn't just say no Christian. No one is single. No one is single, really. Everyone is part of a web of relationships that might be daughter, brother, friend, neighbour, church member. There's, there's a whole web of relationships that everyone is part of. To call someone single is to speak as if the only relationship that matters is marriage. And if you haven't got that one, you're single, you're on your own. No way is that biblical. Yes, the Bible honours marriage. But the Bible also greatly values other relationships, including friendship. So, to the unmarried, 1 Corinthians 7 says, staying unmarried is good, but not for the reasons the Corinthians thought. It's not that there's anything sinful about sex or inferior about being married. Staying unmarried is good, but not for the reasons the Corinthians thought. For reasons we'll get on to, I hope, in a week or two's time, when we get further into the chapter. And because it's not for the reasons the Corinthians thought, verse 9 tells some people to get married. So let's move on to verse 9. It tells some people to get married. Now, here again, we need a good doctrine of scripture. Don't take verse 9 on its own. If you take verse 9 on its own, then we'd have a very strange negative view. A bit like this. If I'm out with my children, they quite often ask, can I have an ice cream? Can we have an ice cream? Oh, no, there's an ice cream van. Can we have an ice cream? And I don't like getting them an ice cream. No, no. No, you know, you can't. ice creams are bad for you. Now, look how expensive they are. Ice creams are expensive. And then eventually, well, OK, make it a mini milk. You know, mini milks, they were 5p when I was a child. Oh, OK, maybe you could have a cone, but no flake in it. In other words, it's a grudging yes. If you really must, OK, a grudging yes. Verse 9 could look like that, couldn't it? It looked like, look, marriage is not a good thing. If you're married, that's really second rate. The spiritual people are the unmarried. But if you really can't help it, and if you really must, okay, you could get married. That's what would happen if we took verse 9 on its own. But we've got to remember it's, it's part of a whole Bible. A whole Bible that tells us marriage is good and marriage is honourable. And the very first command that God gave to humans, do you know what it was? The very first thing he told them. Be fruitful and multiply. That's an interesting one, when you think what that required. And that's God's command. And you've got to remember the rest of the Bible in this way as well. That marriage isn't the way to stop sin. Verse 9 isn't saying, if you can't stop sinning, get married to stop your sin. Because marriage is not the way to stop sin. New life in Jesus with the Holy Spirit controlling you is the way to stop sin. So don't get married just to stop yourself sinning sexually. Do not get married because you've got a porn problem and you think marriage will sort out the porn problem. I speak bluntly because I take it that we're all realistic, that this sort of thing goes on in churches. 
Don't do it. You must have a better reason for marriage than that. So we've got to remember the rest of the Bible. And we've also got to remember the context in Corinth. There were people, probably including those who were in close relationships, including, verse 8, widows. And, And there's controversy about whether the word for unmarried means widowers, male widows. People in close relationship avoiding marriage because they thought that's inferior and that's unspiritual. So I won't get married because I want to be a a superior sort of Christian. I want to be a spiritual Christian, so I won't get married. But then as a result, they were falling into sexual sin. Probably, as chapter 6 tells us, going to the prostitutes. Because, oh, I've got another translation issue. Verse 9 doesn't literally say if they cannot control themselves. It says if they are not controlling themselves. To get the picture, there's these people here. Maybe they've got a close relationship, but they think marriage, now that's not as good as being unmarried. Yeah, that's a bit dirty, but then they find they can't stop themselves. And they're avoiding marriage because they think they'll be more spiritual, but they're actually being more sinful. Because one thing is for sure, you don't serve God by falling into sexual sin. And so verse 9 says to them, look, there's nothing inferior or unspiritual about being married. Get on and get married. Now, if you look at the notice sheet, we've got two more specific examples to go. But I'm going to jump them because we've run out of time to cover all of verses 1 to 24. And I really want to make sure I get the general principle that's behind all of this. So I want to give you the general principle from verses 17 to 24. And maybe next week we'll come back to this first half of the chapter and consider some more. So there's a general principle in verses 17 to 24. And it's behind all the specific examples in verses 1 to 16. And I'll try to illustrate it like this. When I used to be in Zambia, I used to spend quite a bit of time driving to visit schools in for miles around the area that I I would stay in. Really enjoyed visiting schools. And it was nothing like driving in the UK. What do you think a road looks like? Black, tarmac and smooth, probably. Yes. Well, the roads weren't black, they were reddish-orange. And they weren't tarmac, none of them were tarmac. And they were definitely not smooth. <laughs> yeah, Richard and Wilbur know about this, don't you? They're not smooth. No? And so you'd be driving down this dirt track full of holes. The rainy season had carved it into a whole load of curves, bumps and ditches. And as you'd drive along, you'd always think, oh, look, the road is smoother over on the other side. So I'd go over onto the other side and you'd drive along a bit. And you think, oh, no, the road is smoother over where I was. And you'd drive over that side. I reckon I must have driven double the distance I needed to, always thinking. And we would say to each other jokingly, the road is always smoother on the other side. By the way, there's, there's basically no traffic, so you can choose what side of the road you want to be on. No having to stay on your own side. The road is always smoother on the other side. Now, that was the attitude behind these marriage problems Paul is dealing with. Isn't that so often our attitude? The road is always smoother on the other side. 
And that's the attitude here. So, for example, in ver- behind verses 1 to 6, the married are thinking, I could serve the Lord better if I was unmarried, so I'll act like an unmarried person. Or, behind verses 10 to 11, I'll even leave the marriage. So I'm free from all the distractions of a married life and I can serve the Lord better if I was unmarried. Behind verse 8, it's people, unmarried people, thinking life would be so much better if I was married. Yeah, the road is always smoother on the other side. Behind verse 9, the boyfriend who's finding it hard to stay pure with his girlfriend, thinking I would be a so much better Christian. If, if I was like those people who don't struggle with sexual sin, if only I had their gift, I'd be a better Christian. The road is always smoother on the other side. And then, well, behind verses 12 to 16, you've got believers married to unbelievers thinking, how can I please the Lord when I'm married to a pagan who goes and worships an idol in the temple? Surely I'm totally polluted. By my, by my even sexual union with a pagan idolater, all of them are saying the road is smoother on the other side. And so verses 17 to 24, to all of us, God's word says, contentedly serve God in whatever circumstances he's put you. Do you see that? That's what it's saying to all those people. If you've got the green notice sheet, you might notice for every one of them, it says, stay, stay, stay. Contentedly serve God in whatever circumstances he puts you. Now, again, we need a good doctrine of scripture. To take the Bible seriously doesn't mean always taking every phrase literally. Hope you realize that. Otherwise, you think Ephraim was a half-baked cake, because it says that in the Old Testament. Ephraim was not a half-baked cake. Not every phrase in the Bible is to be taken literally. That doesn't mean we're not taking the Bible seriously. The language of verse 17 shouldn't be taken too literally. In February, we baptised four people here. Three of them were still uh, are still going to school. And three of them live at home with their parents. If you took verse 17 literally, then they must never leave school and they must never leave home with their parents because that's what they were doing when they were converted. And you should stay in the state you were in when you were converted. No, don't take it too literally. If you took it literally, you'd have to work out how in verse 18, circumcised people might become uncircumcised and that will cause you some problem. Taking the Bible seriously doesn't mean taking every phrase literally. We've got to look, what's the point that's being driven here? And the point is, be content with the circumstances God has put you in. And work out how to serve him in those circumstances. Rather than thinking, I would serve him if I had different circumstances. I could be a better Christian if only God gave me a different situation. Resist thinking the road is smoother on the other side. That's the general point here in verses 17 to 24. So please do not spend your time daydreaming how you would serve God if you lived somewhere else. Instead, work out how to serve him where you are. 
Please do not tell yourself how you will serve God when your children are grown up and you've got less distractions because you haven't got little children. Instead, serve him by caring for your children now if God's given them to you. Please do not complain to yourself. If only I didn't have that difficult person in my workplace. I could be a much better witness if it wasn't for that person who makes my life a, a difficulty in the workplace. Instead, be a good witness by how you relate to that difficult person. Please do not wonder why God gave you this physical difficulty. Maybe it's an illness. Maybe it's an aspect of, an, of old age and you think, surely I'd serve God better without it. Instead, clearly, God wants you to serve him by how you react to it. You see, if I were God, I wouldn't choose being a carpenter for years as as the best life for the Lord of the nations. If I were God, I wouldn't choose being nailed to the cross and too weak to move as a way to save the world. If I were God, I wouldn't choose being hung half naked and having people laugh at me and mock me as a way to display the glory of God. But it's a good job I'm not God. Let's trust him to know best about our circumstances and contentedly serve him in whatever those circumstances are. Now we'll see next week, he does say to slaves, if you can get free, get free. And yes, he has said to some people in chapter earlier on about getting married. And he even has some things about marriage's ending as well. We will see some details, maybe next week, God willing. But let's not think the road is always smoother on the other side. Serve God in the circumstances he's given you rather than spending your time wishing for other circumstances. I hope you got something helpful about being married or being unmarried from this chapter that's very specific. But please don't treat this sermon or this chapter as just help with marriage or being unmarried. Because after all, the aim isn't us. It isn't all about us. In fact, that's why we tend to chop and change. That's why we think the road is smoother on the other side, because we tend to be focused on us, on self. 1 Corinthians 7 is, is part of a letter all about following Jesus. It's all about living for him, because, verse 23, you were bought at a price. What a price, the blood, the death of the Son of God, and you belong to him. It's all about living for him in whatever circumstances God has given you. So let's pray. Father, we thank you you've given us human relationships. We thank you that no one is single. We thank you for friendships and for family in all its uh, different variety of relationships and for the church and for neighbours. So we pray that we would value and be thankful for the relationships you've given us. Father, in a fallen world, there, there is so, there's so much difficulty and friction in relationships and they're often the arena and the opportunity for so much sin. So please guard our relationships. Please restrain our sin. 
Please would obedience and love and wisdom be behind all of our thoughts and words and actions in our relationships. Please, Father, help us to see how to obey you in our circumstances and not be wishing for different circumstances. Father, this can be very hard because you know that some people have very heavy crosses to bear and we don't find contentment easy. Father, please give us wise contentment that trusts you and wisdom to see how to obey you where you've put us. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, I wonder how many hymn writers wrote their hymns after having read 1 Corinthians 7. What have we got to sing about that's in 1 Corinthians 7? Um, Well, what I thought of is this. There's a version of Psalm 34 that is about praising God in every circumstance. That's what we've just been hearing. So we're going to sing a version of Psalm 34.
to him who is able to keep you from falling and to present you before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy. To the only God our Saviour be glory, majesty, power and authority through Jesus Christ our Lord, before all ages, now and forevermore. Amen. Amen.